Happy New Year and welcome to Onco Farm Pod, uh, an oncology pharmacy podcast. Welcome. Thanks for joining us in uh, the the early uh, tw- 2018. Thank you all for for listening. Uh, as a reminder, please find us on the iTunes Store and rate and review us. Uh, helps other people find us in the iTunes Store. One thing that I wanted to do um, for this inaugural um, pod of 2018 is roll out a new series that that we'll be doing periodically, and that's the what I'm going to call the landmark series. And every now and then, we're going to look at a landmark publication. Um, and I'll tweet out the, the link to this, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at farmdetenib, P-H-A-R-M-D, like farmd, E-E-T-I-N-I-V, farmdetenib. Uh, or you can follow the podcast at OncoFarmPod on Twitter. And I'll, I'll tweet out the link to this from both of these. And we'll be going through the uh, the cancer progress timeline from ASCO and, and picking out really notable uh, publications specific to oncology pharmacy and to, to chemotherapy in particular. So the first one that we're going to look at here is from 1958. So let's go back in time to 1958. Uh, the top five songs going to Billboard in 1958 were uh, Volare by Domenico Modugno. I'm not familiar with that. I'm familiar with the uh, the more popular version by Dean Martin, or at least to me it's more popular. Uh, All I Have to Do is Dream by the Ivory Brothers at two. Number three, Don't by Elvis Presley. I know a lot of Elvis songs, but I do not know Don't. Uh, Witch Doctor by David Seville and Patricia by Perez Prado, which is not one I've heard of either. Uh, some of the notable, notable movies uh, or films of, of 58, and this is, comes from the IMDb uh, database and, and rating. So the number one, uh, Vertigo. Number two, The Big Country. Uh, four was Dunkirk, another example of what's old is new again. And uh, five was Touch of the Evil, which was directed by Orson Welles. And of course, Vertigo was directed by uh, Hitchcock. So this is from Blood. 1958. This was submitted uh, for publication March 26th and then accepted on July 7th. And one thing I want to point out before I talk about this study in depth is this, and and I'm I'm going to quote the study a lot, this study was supported in part by Grant C-2599 of the National Cancer Institute, the National Institute of Health, and U.S. Public Health Service. So this was a publicly funded work that benefited not just all of America, but really all all of mankind. So this was published in Blood, 1958. The title: A Comparative Study of the Two Regimens of Two Regimens of Combination Chemotherapy and Acute Leukemia, uh, by Emil Fry III, James Holland, Marvin Schneiderman, Donald Pinkle, George Selkirk, Emil Freireich, Richard Silver, G. Leonard Gold, and William Regelson. Certainly, Fry, Freireich, Pinkle uh, are pretty notable names. The first sentence: Since the introduction of the folic acid antagonist into clinical medicine several other analogs, blah, blah, blah. They reference number one. Reference number one, Sidney Farber, 1948, aminopterin, in uh, producing temporary remissions in acute leukemia. Um, so essentially what they're doing in the study is they are comparing uh, methotrexate, folic analog, and 6-MP in acute leukemias. Uh, and they say, quote, the concept of combination chemotherapy is not new. Ample evidence existed in human tuberculosis. End of quote. So this is uh, the idea of combination chemo was extrapolated 
from infectious disease and using multiple agents to treat tuberculosis because that helped prevent the development of resistance against any one uh, drug or chemical entity. Uh, a lot of parallels between ID and oncology, uh, if you really think about it. Uh, independent observations on small numbers of patients treated with combination of 6-MP and methotrexate have recently been reported, uh, and this was a publication by Sidney Farber and Donald Pinkle, but the studies were abandoned because uh, the investigators thought the toxicity was excessive. Again, a quote from the article. Another example of how revolutionary this practice was and, frankly, how ludicrous some people at the time thought that these studies were and how cruel they were to, to children. In fact, in, their, in the discussion, uh, there are two paragraphs defending this as not harming patients in any way by being on this study. All right, so let's get into some of the specifics here. So... 6-MP and methotrexate, both arms, they were randomized in that way, uh, and they were, um, this was at four, four, different, um, four different groups, three different places. So National Cancer 2, which is in Bethesda, uh, Roswell Park, uh, Roswell Park Children's, and then University Children's of Buffalo. So four institutions, so they had some adults. And some peds, peds were, uh, children were less than 15 years of age. So one arm was 6-MP and methotrexate every day, and the other arm was 6-MP every day, same as the other arm, but then methotrexate every third day. So you had the continuous group where methotrexate was taken every day and the intermittent group, which was every third day. So the dose of 6-MP initially was three mg per kg every day. Uh, and the methotrexate dose was 2.5 milligrams every day or 7.5 every third day. So they're using the same dose per day of both methotrexate and 6-MP, the only difference is that 6-MP is, or I'm sorry, methotrexate is 2.5 milligrams daily in the continuous group or 7.5 milligrams every third day. I think this is notable. This is a pretty small difference a lot of people would say, maybe not oncology pharmacists, but a lot of people would say, you know, it's the same average dose per day. It's probably not going to make a difference. And yet they randomized 85 people, eventually uh, 84, eventually 65 uh, received treatment. They randomized patients. They got informed consent and randomized patients to look at this relatively minor difference in the dosing of methotrexate. And then they went and did it again and again and again with lots of other agents and other doses, and that's why we do so well with acute leukemias today, and especially in children, is because of really studying these details in a randomized, controlled way. It's really remarkable. Um, so anyway, they gave them these drugs until they had toxicity, and I won't get into the details of how that's defined, but if signs of toxicity had not appeared at 35 days, the dose of both drugs was doubled. Uh, here's how uh, the statistics section was described in 1958. We considered an event which could have occurred less than 1 in 20, Parenthetically, P equals 0 0.5 due, uh, due to chance alone as significant. So uh, same P value of 0.05, but described a little more in a little more common sense way back in 1958. Uh, as I said, uh, they, uh, they enrolled 84 patients, but only 65 actually made it to protocol. And of those 19, they described what happened. Um, and I'll, I'll give you some of the highlights. Two were excluded because of azotemia. So the idea of excluding non-fit patients is nothing old. So patients with renal failure were admitted. And then there were five consecutive patients who got enrolled in another study due to, quote, administrative misinterpretation. It's always a little confusing when you read a study where the inclusion criteria 
is something like uh, you know hormone positive breast cancer patients, and then you see the baseline demographics, and there's you know there's like two patients that have uh, ERPR negative hormone status. Like, how did this person get in this study? Well, administrative misinterpretations happen, and they've always happened. Uh, so I mentioned the four institutes that uh, uh, that accrued patients: the NCI Roswell Park Medicine A, Roswell Park Pediatrics, Children's Hospital of Buffalo. Uh, 84 patients total, 43 with ALL, 22 with AML, and of course the ALL had a higher proportion of children, the AML had a higher proportion of adults. The remission rates were basically the same between both groups. So the intermittent group had a remission rate, so partial and complete remissions combined of about 31% versus 27% continuous, so no real difference. However, when you look at the survival, um, the continuous group does better in the long run. And the authors attribute this, you know, the re response rates are the same, but the responses are more durable in the continuous group. And if I had asked you f a few minutes ago to guess which one would end up working better, continuous dosing of methotrexate or intermittent, you probably would say uh, continuous, knowing that it's an anti-metabolite, it's cell cycle specific, and probably the more frequently the drug is taken, the better it would be. Now keep in mind, Today, we don't necessarily do this upfront with ALL. Now, methotrexate and 6-MP are the mainstay of maintenance treatment ALL, not so much induction treatment. Uh, so here's a description of the uh, survival curves. Survival curves are essentially identical until, until day 210, uh, which is true, after which they diverge. Uh, the longer survival in the continuous program is due uh, in part to longer duration of remission. And you can see this if you if you look at this article, figure two, the survival curves are exactly the same uh, after about six months, and then there starts to see a little plateau from the continuous group. In the intermittent group, everyone dies by day 360, whereas by day 480, there are about 5% of patients still alive in the continuous group. Setting the stage for long-lasting remissions the, um, and for future works to not only improve that remission rate, but keep them in remission longer. Some other interesting things from this, uh, quote, it is apparent from this graph that children survive longer than adults, P less than 0.01. So even back then we were starting to learn that children do better with acute leukemia than adults. Um, they, they did not find a difference between uh, you know, lymphocytic and myelocytic leukemia uh, in this treatment um, overall, but when you look at it by um, break it out into adults, the adults with AML do a lot better, and by day 480, a little over 10% of them are still alive, whereas all the adults with ALL are dead. Uh, and all the children with, a, with AML, acute myelocytic leukemia, are dead by about a year with, uh, again, about 5% long-term uh, remission. Long-term being 480 days, which is not even two years. So, again, this is setting the stage, talking just two drugs to treat, um, to treat acute leukemia, and um, if you think about it, if, if you had, you know, a, a, a disease today that was uniformly fatal and you tested, at, you know, regimen A versus regimen B and no one was alive a year and a half later in regimen A and in regimen B, you know, 5 to 10% were alive, you probably wouldn't think of that as being groundbreaking. And yet it was at that time because this was a uniformly fatal disease and this was the first step and these... Uh, these physicians really went on when people thought that it was not, um, in some cases, ethical to do what they were doing. Uh, toxicity-wise, almost all have some kind of mucositis. 
Uh, hemorrhage was really common infection. Um, 17 patients died uh, during the treatment period. Um, seven of those were due to Pseudomonas septicemia, as they quote in the study. Uh, an interesting thing here when you look at the toxicity, uh, this was before we had you know, the, the national um, terminology uh, toxicity criteria. So the term for serious hematologic toxicity was fall off. And I'll read from, read from the study. So 14 out of 64 patients experienced a decrease in platelet counts termed fall off. Platelet fall off is defined as a drop of more than 100. So say going from 350 to 250 would be considered a fall off. And polymorphonuclear leukocyte, or neutrophil, fall off was defined as a fall by more than 1,000 from the original count. Um, as far as toxicity, there was no big difference from, uh, from either treatment regimen. And again, that, that small minor benefit of in the continuous group. Um, and again, you know, really, really interesting study. When you go back and look at how they describe things, it's longer than, uh, than studies today. Uh, at the very end of the study, there's something, of the publication, there's something called Samario in Interlingua, which, from what I can gather, is... It might be Latin, I don't know, it might be Spanish, some kind of romance language, but it's apparently some sort of international common language for disseminating medical information. Um, and it wasn't English, uh, and that's not done today either. So uh, I, if you guys haven't figured out, I'm a bit of a nerd, um, maybe quite a bit of a nerd, so I enjoy going back and, and learning the history of this and reading this stuff for myself, and I hope you guys do as well. I hope you've had a good start to 2018. Uh, don't forget to go rate and review us in the iTunes store. Uh, at me with your questions uh, or at me with ideas for, for future episodes. And I look forward to talking to you more in 2018.